Jonah 1, 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. When the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Blair. Well, we're in the season of Epiphany right now, which is this, uh, the time in uh, the church calendar where we celebrate and focus on the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the nations, that he's, he's the Savior of the world and not just for people that look like us. And so it's a... It's a time where the church has traditionally focused on the mission of God, and so that's what we've been doing for the past couple of weeks. We've been looking at this theme of God's mission in the world through the lens of this kind of Old Testament famous story found in Jonah. So if you're if you're if you're new, you're you're and you're just dropping into Jonah, you haven't missed much. We're we're still in chapter one, so you're you should, you're good to go. Um, I don't know if you've seen the newish Disney movie Encanto. If you haven't, it's amazing. We love it. We've been we've been having the soundtrack on repeat in the Howl House for the past few weeks. And in case you're worried, don't worry. I'm I'm not going to talk about Bruno. 
Um, do we talk about Bruno? We do not talk about Bruno in our house. Um, if you have if you haven't seen the movie, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to explain the movie without spoiling it for you because I, I, I do think you should see it. But the movie is basically about this family in Colombia that has come across this kind of magic candle. And the, the, the candle that threw the magic in it enchants their house so that the house is alive and it's fun. It's like one of the characters in the story. And each person in the family gets this magical gift through this candle. And so you have one child who gets like incredible strength and she can move mountains and she can move churches and she's just like super strong. And uh, another character, another child gets the magical gift of being able to hear animals and talk to animals and communicate with animals. Super fun. But as, as most stories go, there's this, you know, drama that starts to get introduced where the, the magic starts to fade, the, the candle starts to flicker, the foundation of the house starts to crack and starts to crumble, and, that, and the family, which was kind of this vibrant, fun family, starts to enter into dysfunction and chaos, and they're all mad at each other. And again, without spoiling anything, one of the characters, who will remain nameless, towards the end of the movie has this eureka moment where she realizes... She is the one that's to blame. She's the one that's at fault for why the house is falling apart, why the family is so messed up. She has been focusing so much on keeping the candle alive and keeping the magic going that she's, she's, her priorities have gotten so out of whack that she has uh, forgotten that the real magic is her family. The real magic is the love and relationships of her own family. And so she has this moment where here is this candle this um, magic that was supposed to enhance and bless, and she got so disordered and thrown out of whack that it was the result of the house collapsing and her family kind of being broken to pieces. Now, does the house get rebuilt? Does the family get reunited? You'll have to watch it on your own to figure out what happens in the end. It is a Disney movie, so... Keep that in mind. But the, here, the reason why I bring this up is because I think it's so fascinating. The themes of that movie uh, overlay pretty well onto the themes of Jonah 1. Because God invites Jonah, and therefore he invites us into his mission of serving the world and blessing the world. And it's not busy work. Kind of like this candle, it was intended, it's given as a gift to bring life into the world, to, bring, uh, to make the world better, to enhance the world. And when Jonah says no, when he runs and says, I don't want to participate in this, the foundations crack. And rather than being the source of blessing and life in the world, Jonah brings devastation and destruction into the world. He brings about the exact opposite of what God intended. Because if you think about it, God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites. What would be the best case scenario? Best case scenario is Jonah goes and he preaches and the people of Nineveh hear, and they repent, and they respond, and they get to experience grace and salvation and reconcile to God. And that grace could begin to heal what is broken in that society. And then that city could become ground zero for blessing their neighbors. And Jonah gets to experience the joy of communion with God and getting to participate in this renovation project that God's up to in the world. Jonah gets life. The Ninevites get life. Neighbors get life. That's what God wants to have, have happen. His, his mission is not just busy work because he thinks we're bored and we need some distraction. He wants to bring life into the world. But, like I said, Jonah says no, and his rebellion brings about the antithesis. His rebellion brings about sweeping devastation. And so what, what I want to do with our time this morning 
is look at what our rebellion does. Let's, let's go deeper and figure out what is it when we rebel against God, when we say no to him and to his mission, what does that do? And then secondly, how does our rebellion end? Is there any hope for rebels? What rebellion does, how rebellion ends. And just so you know, I, I have never had an original thought before in, in my life. I'm, I'm gleaning from the help of friends of mine, Matt Grimsley, Tim Keller, who's <laughs> a friend of mine, um, uh, Brent Webster, Eugene Peterson, another close buddy. And um, so just to cite my sources, this is all filtered through them. So first, um, what rebellion does. And, and to get into this, if you, you take a closer look at chapter one, you can see that our rebellion really does three things. It impacts the world in three different ways. And here's the first. Our rebellion breaks our relationship with God. That's the first thing that we see. It breaks our relationship with God. Look at verse three. I, I brought this out last week. We're going to look at it again. Two times in that verse, it says that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You see that two different times. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That's not actually what it says in Hebrew. The literal Hebrew word there says that Jonah is fleeing from the face of the Lord. Now, in, in the Hebrew language, your face, God's face was a way of describing, uh, in, in some ways, kind of a shorthand way of talking about his presence. That's why we translate it that way. It's, it's a way of saying, that, it's a way of capturing this is what God's essence is, his personhood. In the same way, when you're talking to somebody, you, you, you look at them in the face, even just the top half of their face these days. But when you're looking at somebody's face, you know this is kind of like the, the portal into their being. This is the window into their personhood. This is why you don't look at their elbow unless you're a weirdo when you're talking to them because you know this is not the pathway into their being. It's their face. So when the Bible talks about God's face, having God's face, it's a way of saying that you have the very presence of God shining upon you. You have his smile, his delight, his favor. This is why the most uh, famous benediction in the Bible is this, um, is this call that says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, turn towards you and give you peace. Because to have the face of God is to have his very presence, his delight, his favor. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, it uses that language there as well. It says that Adam and Eve turned and they hid from the presence of the Lord, from the face of God. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they didn't just lose the garden, they lost his face. And the story of human history, the story of your life, and the story of my life has been a quest to try to get it back. Example, in, in, in 1945, there was a book that came out by this Scottish author named Bruce Marshall. It's called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. It's about a guy named Father Smith, who's a Catholic priest. And there's this famous scene in that book where he's, he's walking down the street, and he, this woman engages him in a conversation, and she's essentially hitting on him. She's trying to seduce him, and, and she's communicating with him, I don't understand how you could go your whole life without having women be a part of it. And he says to her, well... I think that sex is a boring and cheap substitute for the thrill of, of walking with God in a relationship. 
And she kind of mocks him back and says, okay, see, that's, you're just reinforcing what I've always believed, that religion is, is, actu- is really just a substitute for sex. And then he responds back to her with this famous line, which is, this is a line that often gets attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but it's not his, it's from this book. And here's what Father Smith says. I prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion and that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Point that he's making is that our longing for sexual intimacy at its root is actually a longing to experience the intimacy of God's face. And in some ways, you could say that's the root of all of our longings, that when we desire to see beauty, what we're, desi- what we're longing for is the beauty of God's face. What we're longing for when we want truth and we're craving truth in the, in the world, when we're, when we're wanting justice in the world, when we're wanting intimacy and friendship or financial security, at its root, what we're all longing for is his face because we've lost it. And we know in a, in a primal sense that we've lost it. And so all of our desires in some ways trace back to that. We're longing to reclaim it. But that's what, that's what our rebellion does. It breaks our relationship with God. It, it, we lose his face. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Our rebellion doesn't just uh, break our relationship with God. It, it also breaks our relationship with ourselves. It's, it's always self-destructive. Every commentary that I've read, every scholar that, I, that I've interacted with on this passage points out that the author of Jonah chapter 1 is intentionally trying to show you that Jonah is in a downward spiral. I don't know if you noticed how many times the word down shows up in this passage. Look at verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going there. And so he paid the fare, and he went down into it. Then verse 5, the mariners were afraid. They're crying out. They hurled the cargo off the ship. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had laid down and was fast asleep. And you go further into the story, and Jonah gets thrown overboard. He goes down into the water. He gets swallowed. goes down into the belly of a fish. And in fact, in in the next chapter, in chapter 2, he uses this this poetic language to say that he has sunken so deep into the bottom of the ocean that he is at the roots of the mountains, which was in a Hebrew's imagination, a way of saying, I have hit rock bottom. I cannot get any, any more down. I, he has gone down, 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 and he's hit the very bottom. What's the point? The point is, is that Jonah's rebellion has sent him on a downward spiral. He's like flushing down the toilet. His, his whole life is going downhill. But the thing is, is that our rebellion always promises to lift us up. Sin always comes to us and and promises to elevate your life, to advance your life, to bring you up. But the reality is is it always sends us crashing back downward, which makes sense if you think about, okay, if if we are designed by God, that means that he has has built in ways that he wants us to live in line with his heart and in line with his mission. And so if we say no to that, if we choose to just do whatever we want to do, then we're not just um, breaking God's law. We're breaking ourselves. Rebellion is always self-destructive, um, which this is really hard, especially, I think, for modern people to hear because the, the Bible comes to us and says, deny yourself. You have these instincts. You have these desires. Submit your desires underneath God's desires. 
And that's hard enough, but we also live in a culture that reinforces and nurtures uh, self-improvement and uh, self-care and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And so to deny any desire that you have feels wrong. It feels suicidal. In fact, we think real life, real freedom is going to be found if I get rid of any restriction where I can do whatever I want to do, as long as I don't hurt somebody else, that's where life is found, where I'm given the freedom to just indulge myself. And when we do, we realize we're breaking ourselves. In fact, the, the um, classic illustration, the classic image of this is to think about uh, a goldfish in a fishbowl. If you look at a goldfish in a fishbowl swimming around and, you know, bebopping his way through life, and you say... Okay, that poor fish is so restricted. Look at how look at how cramped that life is. I want to liberate that fish. I want to set that fish free, free from all these restrictions. And you scoop the fish up and you set it on the sidewalk and you say, "You're liberated, fish. Go, go fish, go. Enjoy a free life." Well, you know you know what's going to happen. Is that fish more free with restrictions or without them? Is that fish um, experiencing more life with restrictions or without them. If God has designed us, he has, he has built into the fabric of reality restrictions. And those restrictions are not there to make you miserable. They're there to enhance your life, believe it or not, to bless you. So think about sex. Um, God says, I only want you to enjoy sex within the context of the covenant of marriage. Is that restrictive? Yes, absolutely. Will you find deeper and truer freedom with those restrictions? Yes, absolutely. You think about God's mission in the world, where he says, I want you to give away your life for the sake of other people. I want you to live for something bigger than your small, narrow little world. I want you to give away your money and your time and your energy and your skills to serve your neighbors. Is that restrictive? Absolutely. You can't just live your life any way that you want anymore. That impacts how you make decisions. That impacts where you live. That impacts how you spend money. That's absolutely restrictive. Does that bring about deeper freedom? Absolutely. When we go against God's design, it is always self-destructive. It's, it's just Jonah going down, 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 down. Our rebellion breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with us. Here's the third thing. It breaks other people. It hurts other people too. In, in fact, um, the story of Jonah 1, the plot is pretty simple. God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go. And Jonah says, No. And then he gets in a boat, and then God sends a storm. But here's the thing. Jonah's not the only person on the storm, in the boat. There's all these other sailors that are on the, in the boat with Jonah, which means they're having to endure this storm that's really Jonah's fault. In fact, look at, um, look at verse 5. Uh, it, it says that they're, they, they, they're afraid. They start freaking out, and they start hurling their cargo from their ship into the ocean to lighten the, the weight of the boat. You think, okay, well, whose cargo was that? It was theirs. It was their inventory, their money, their stuff that they're losing. They're having to endure the, the panic and the terror. Here's the point, is that Jonah's rebellion 
doesn't just affect Jonah. Our re- rebellion, it always affects other people because we're, we're social people. We live connected to other people. And so there is no such thing as this personal, private form of rebellion. It always impacts and hurts other people. I'll give you an example of this. I don't know if you've been following the news about, uh, I guess for the past few years, about Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes is the uh, youngest self-made billionaire in our country. And um, she invented this uh, medical device that changes the way that we test blood. You know, if you, if you want to test your blood now, you go to the clinic, you go to the doctor's office or whatever, and you sit there and they put the, you know, tourniquet on your arm or whatever and, you know, get your veins to bulge. And then they, st- I can't even look when they do it. I literally have to look over here. They st- stab you and they pump out, suck out all your blood and put it in these vials and then take it to the lab. And it's, it, it's a horrendous experience. And, um, but she changed all that. And she says she came up with this medical device that just pricks your finger and one little drop of blood from your finger gets you all the tests all these different things. And so there's all these doctors, all these researchers that bought her device and uh, were making medical decisions for their patients based off of these, you know, little devices that she made. The problem is, is that the whole thing was a scam. And it doesn't really work. And she knew it. But her greed and her ambition to sell and to make money and become famous overrode her you know, ethics, as it were. And so real doctors were making real decisions based off of these tests and and coming up with medical plans for patients to say, oh, well, you have cancer, let's treat you for cancer, when they didn't have cancer. Or if they had had something going on that, that it missed. And so tons and tons of people are getting hurt by this. They just, you know, a couple weeks ago in the news, uh, she was found guilty of four different charges of defrauding her investors, and she faces 20 years in prison for every charge, plus thousands, millions of dollars in restitution. Point being is that her rebellion hurts people. And you think, well, okay, that's this big, splashy news story. I'm not doing that. I'm not ripping off people, uh, you know, trying to make money for on medical devices, but you think, okay, our small little ways of rebellion hurts people too. This is Jonah's story, this is her story, this is our story. You think about all the, all the little decisions that we make away from God's ways of being in the world, it impacts other people. Think about just our addiction to comfort, our addiction to living a middle, upper class American life. If we just say, I... I want to just kind of live for me and have my family and my people be happy and comfortable. Well, that impacts our neighbors in our city that need our resources, that need our connections, that need our voice to advocate for them. And if we just say, I'm just going to live my life for me and accrue more wealth and more toys and more stuff for me, that's not going to impact anybody. Well, yeah, of course it is. That's, that's why our city's broken. That's why there's such a disparity. It's part of the reason why it's such a disparity in wealth in our city. Or think about just, a, just a, the, the almost ubiquitous addiction to pornography. When, when people engage in pornography, you think, well, that's just my little personal private vice. But you don't realize, okay, that's, that's shaping the way that I think about other people. I'm beginning to see other people as commodities, as, as not human beings, people that exist really just for my pleasure. 
And when I participate in, in something like that, I'm, I'm funding an industry that dehumanizes people, that oppresses people, that enslaves people, traffics people. I'm participating in something that's incredibly painfully hurtful. It's not private. There's no rebel, form of rebellion or sin that's just private. Think about small little ways where we say, I'm just, I just refuse to repent. I refuse to extend grace, ask for forgiveness, or extend forgiveness. Well, if you've been any, in any relationship, you know that that fractures your relationship with that person. It fractures our marriages. It fractures our relationship with our kids. It fractures our relationship with our friends or our roommates or people in the church. Put all of that together. Rebellion against God is, is, is um, personally, socially, spiritually suicidal and homicidal. It's, it's catastrophic. It, it's never private. It's never just us. It, it has these sweeping, devastating consequences. This is why we woke up in a world this morning that is broken and why our lives are a mess and why we're a mess and our relationships are a mess. Now, you stop here and you think, well, good grief, this, is, um, this was a bad day to decide to go to church today. This is horribly depressing. Um, maybe we should just close in prayer and be done. Is there any hope here? Is there any hope for rebels? And yes, there is. So here's the second big idea I want to look at with you. How does rebellion end? How does this end? If that's what it does, then how, how, do, how do we make it stop? Well, if you, if you look back, if you rewind in this story, you know, this, God sends this storm, and this storm is so, um, it's so powerful, it's so life-threatening that the sailors there knew this was something that was supernatural. They'd been through storms before. It's not like this was a new deal for them to be in a storm, but they knew this is, this is different. And so they start casting lots to try to figure out who's the culprit, who's responsible for this giant, crazy, supernatural storm that we're all going to die in. And they figure out in verse 7, uh, it's Jonah's fault. And so they come to him in a panic. They're like freaking out. Who are you? Why are you on our boat? And they say in verse 11, okay, what should we do with you? What should we do to you? And here's Jonah's solution in verse 12. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Kill me. That's the solution. Pick me up and throw me into the, into the water, and I'll drown, and the storm will stop. And they think, this is crazy. This is crazy talk. We didn't wake up this morning and plan on murdering somebody on our boat trip today. So it says in verse 13, they try to row harder. They're trying to get to land. They think this is a stupid option, but the storm is too powerful. The ship is about to break up. They're out of options. They're desperate. And so out of, you know, with reluctance and hesitation, they pick Jonah up and they throw him into the water and he sinks beneath the surface of the water and the storm miraculously stops. And for all they know, Jonah just died. He just sinks to the bottom. He can't, he's going to swim to land. They think Jonah just died and they just got saved. His life extinguishes and their lives are spared. Now, we know what happens underneath the surface of the water because as the readers, we have verse 17. 17 says, a great fish comes and swallows him and he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. End of act one in the story of Jonah. Now, it's fascinating. Jesus brings this story up in the New Testament. 
If you get to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus tells uh, this uh, group of people, he says, there's going to be no sign given to this generation other than the sign of Jonah. You think, okay, what in the world is he talking about? What does he mean by the sign of Jonah? Well, what is a sign? A sign is something that points beyond itself to the reality, pointing beyond itself to the reality of what it's pointing to. So, for example, if you want to go to Graceland right after church, get in your car and you go to south on 240, and if you see the sign that says, oh, Graceland this way, three miles, four miles, whatever it is, nobody in the right mind would pull your, their car underneath the sign and think, we're, we're here, see it, we're here, and you get out of your car and you're like, where's the, where's the jungle room, where's the, you know, whatever. Uh, no, because the sign isn't the thing, the sign is pointing to the thing. So what does Jesus mean when he says that the this whole story of Jonah is a sign pointing to something. And here's what he says next. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, This whole story of Jonah is pointing to me. It's a movie trailer that's pointing to me as the, as the main feature. In fact, look, this is what he says to make it explicit in Matthew 12, 41. He says, something greater than Jonah is here. This whole story, the themes of the story find their, their, their resolution, their climax in Jesus himself. And you think, okay, how does that make sense? Well, you start to think about it, it's pretty obvious. Here's Jonah, and he gets thrown into the storm of God's wrath, and the sailors are saved. And here's Jesus, and he gets thrown into the storm of God's wrath on the cross, and you and I are saved. Death swallows Jonah, as it were, for, for three days and, and three nights in the belly of the fish, and death swallows Jesus for three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. Both give their lives for the sake of somebody else. Only Jonah's, as we know, wasn't, it wasn't real. In fact, his motives for doing it were all jacked up anyway. But here is Jesus. The true Jonah, the real Jonah that the Jonah is pointing to, and what, ha what happens on the cross? Our rebellion breaks him to pieces. He's crying out in agony. He's, he's writhing in pain. And you know what he cries out? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's experiencing in that moment? God turning his face away from him. Jesus is losing the delight, the favor, the smile of the Father. Instead, he's getting the frown. He's getting the wrath. He's getting the punishment that all of our rebellion deserves. It's not Jesus' rebellion. It's our rebellion. He's being obliterated on the cross. Why? So that you and I could have his face again. So that you and I can know in our heart of hearts that we have the delight of God. Jesus is being forsaken so that we can be brought in. Grace is the thing that begins to undo what our rebellion has, has destroyed. Grace always renews what our rebellion destroys. So think about it. How, how does grace renew and restore these three aspects of our lives? How does grace restore our relationship with God? When you look at the cross and his love for you, you can know in your heart of hearts that you have his smile you have his favor, even when it doesn't feel like it. When you feel in your heart of hearts the shame, the guilt, the, the, the voice of accusation that just says, I am the worst, I'm a piece of garbage, I'm a failure, I've always done it wrong, you can look at the cross and know that you have the delight 
the smile, the fav, the face of God. Grace gives you his face. Grace restores your relationship with yourself. Because following Jesus is no longer about just behavior modification, just, just surface level compliance. I'll just, okay, I'll do whatever he says, fine. Grace activates your very heart. When you know that you are loved, that is what awakens love. And so when your heart gets activated, that, that re-engages with your will, that re-engages with your actions, your whole being, which has been broken apart and fragmented, starts to come together and has integrity. You start to come together as a whole person once you start to taste grace. And then here's the third thing. Grace restores your relationship with other people. When we say this every single week uh, at Redeemer, when we pass the peace of Christ, we say, well, because... Um, he has uh, purchased our peace, or however we say it, because we have peace with God, we can pursue peace with one another. We can give away now what we have. What do we have? We have grace. So we enter into relationships that are hard or broken or challenging, and we give away what he's given us, grace and kindness and love, and we enter back into a world that is broken, not with military might, but with kindness and with grace. We give away what he's given us. Grace restores what our rebellion destroys. But here's the thing. You can only get it when you collapse into the arms of the one that Jonah is pointing towards. If you're anything like me and you consistently wreck your relationship with God and consistently wreck your relationship with yourself and wreck your relationship with other people, the only thing there is left to do is to collapse into the arms of Jesus knowing that he will not cast you out. He does not reject and scorn and push away rebels, but he receives us. And in an unfathomable way, he delights in us. And after he gives us his grace, he turns us around and sends us back out into the world to be agents of his blessing. So I want you to consider that an invitation this morning. How, whatever form of rebellion you find yourself in, uh, to collapse into the arms of the one that Jonah is pointing towards because you will find grace there. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we um, are hell-bent on going to rock bottom and to spiraling our lives downward. And Father, thank you that you um, are not ashamed of people like us, but you have come for people like us. Thank you that your grace does not, uh, is sufficient and it is enough for people like us. I pray that in our rebellion, in our guilt, in our shame, in the ways that we have been hardened towards you, cold towards you, um, ambivalent towards your grace, that you would give us eyes and fleshy soft hearts to experience the wonder of it, the sweetness of it, that we might delight in this one that has been so gracious and good to rebels like us. May that be so of my heart, and may that be so for these folks' hearts as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.